For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Thursday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? Well, today is International Area Code Day, or National Area Code Day, I should say. Today is the date that the area code was first implemented, making it easier for people to make uh, phone calls. Uh, today, in 1969, was the day that Sesame Street aired for the very first time. I remember actually being in school and our teachers bringing the TVs into our classroom uh, so that we could all watch Sesame Street. Tells you a little bit about how old I am. Uh, but today, we are going to be talking about Elvis Presley. And we have an incredible guest on our show, uh, Sally Hodel, who is, you know, she has devoted her life to celebrating him. And you all know how I feel about celebrating. Uh, I'm going to bring her on because I have a little story that I want to share with her. Uh, hello, Sally. First of all, thank you for being here. Hello. Uh, and uh, I, we're dedicating this show today to Rose Apuzo because Rose is a huge Elvis Presley fan. And she said, you have to have Sally on the show. Aww. But I want to share a story with you. Um, Elvis Presley was born on January 8th, 1935. My father was born on January 10th, 1935. And when I was probably about eight years old, we were at my grandmother's and my father was just making a joke about Elvis Presley because my father was also a big Elvis Presley fan. And he made this funny joke. I don't know where this came from. And he said, if the planets had been lined up just a little bit differently, <laughs> do you know what that would have meant? I don't know where it came from, but I said, yes, I would have been Lisa Marie Presley. <laughs> <laughs> and my father never brought that subject up again. <laughs> Oh, that's great. So, oh, when, I, when I think of Elvis, I always think of my father and the look on his face when I said I could have been Lisa Marie Presley. <laughs> but I want to ask you, I begin all my shows by asking who or what are you celebrating today? Oh, gosh. Well, like you said, we're celebrating Elvis. You know, it's such a privilege to be able to talk to you about him. And, uh, you know, I, I do a lot within the Elvis fan world, and that's incredible. But it's so amazing to have these opportunities to talk about Elvis in a place where maybe he's not usually discussed because he really is everywhere. As you know, he's all around us. He pops up in pop culture all the time. Um, yet I think that our pop culture idea of Elvis is probably kind of flawed and maybe he's not as celebrated as he should be for his contributions. You know, I always say that Elvis shouldn't be thought of as just a rock and roll star. He's a historical figure uh, because he culturally shifted the universe. And that shift was as big as what Henry Ford or Thomas Edison did just in a cultural way. So um, to have the opportunity to talk about Elvis in a, in a different venue than you, you know, is just, it's such a gift. So I've been, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you. So have I. And, you know, and I will tell you that, uh, first of all, uh, this book, Destined to Die Young, um, and I, I'm going to out Rose for a moment, because Rose, she said, that title just bothers me a little bit, because, you know, you know, is anyone really destined to die young? And, but once I started delving into this book, uh, Yes, he was destined to die young. And I have, you know, I learned so much uh, from reading this book. But before we get there, I want to talk about you for a moment. Uh, because you have four kids, I think it is, four children. Yep. Um, I am the oldest of four. Um, and I look at you. Um, I don't know how old you are, and I'm not asking. <laughs> uh, but I look you. You seem very young to me. Um, and I think of you probably uh, at my, as my mom, uh, around your age, raising four children. Uh, and I can't even imagine my mom in her busy world at that time, finding the time that you have in addition to what I know about you, because you and your husband have created this incredible program as well. And you homeschool your children. So God bless you, first of all, for that. <laughs> um, this was something you were doing before COVID. Uh, it threw so many people off kilter. 
Can we talk a little bit about you before we get to Elvis? Sure. Um, yeah. That sounds stressful, everything you just said, and it often is. <laughs> it often is. You know, I have homeschooled my kids for 15 years, and the oldest two are in high school now, but I have um, two eighth graders. My youngest are twins, so they're home still for eighth grade, and they'll go to school next year. Uh, we homeschool up until high school. And, um, and yeah, we, we are self-employed, we've educated at home. So when COVID did hit, you know, it didn't really shift our universe that much because we did so much from home anyways, being self-employed and self-educating and all that. Um, but really, you know, the book kind of came from that self-drive as well, because the kids were getting older and they didn't need me all the time. And they did need me all the time, you know, for a good decade. And it was kind of like, well, what do I do at that time? I don't want to just get on social media. I don't want to waste that time. Mm -hmm. um, and I just had this idea in the back of my my head always, you know, I wanted to write a book. And uh, when I I ended up being reconnected with my Elvis books that I bought as a kid. And when that happened, you know, I sat down and I, I read them and it was Elvis and me and it was Elvis and Gladys and all those those books that everybody's read, all the Elvis fans. Um, and it just gave me that I this the idea for the foundation of Destin to Die Young. You know, what if this is why? Elvis dies in the way that he does. What if this is why he dies in the way Gladys dies? And, you know, we can get into that why of it, but um, kind of that I just sat with that for a while and I sat with it and I, I couldn't let it go. It kind of got a hold of me. And uh, being a, you know, a professional and a writer, and of course, setting a lot of that aside to raise kids for so many years, I was really driven to write about something I was really passionate about. Um, and that's really, you know, kind of where the book came from. It was just that that desire to commit to something I really, really cared about. I love the writing process. I love the research process. And I've done it a lot, but I've I've rarely done it about something that I'm really passionate about. And, and that changes everything about the process. It just does. I love that. Before we get to the book, can you tell us a little bit about the program uh, that you and your husband have created for homeschooling? Sure. And it's actually not for homeschooling. It is in schools in every state across the country. Um, it's called Character and Leadership. And it's an 18 week class that's in uh, two words that we need. Yes. Character yeah. and leadership. And the whole curriculum is based on 18 character traits, you know, responsibility, loyalty, honesty, all those things, you know, <laughs> that are very important. Um, and it's each trait is connected to a historical figure or a current figure, a role model who exemplifies that trait. So there's a textbook attached to it and a curriculum. And it's an it's an 18 week class, you know, that kids take in high schools across the country. And like you said, it's really important. Uh, uh, do you teach it to adults as well? <laughs> we should work on that, huh? <laughs> I, I, I think so. And yeah, I, I let's talk because I think it's a course that should be taught. Uh, especially in today's world. Uh, and, and I want to say thank you to you and your husband for teaching this course. Uh, and uh, when I saw that, I was just so pleased that you are doing this. Um, yeah. but, you know, and, and that's mainly that's mainly what my husband does. I've helped a lot with the writing and, and the layout design and that type of thing, which is what primed us me to be able to write this book because we, we knew how to write books. So then it, it became it was just time for me to have my own project. And that's where this Elvis thing came from. And it's been the most rewarding, amazing journey. If you were to look around the room that I'm in right now, I am surrounded by books. I am such a book nerd. Uh, on Saturday, uh, I did a whole show, uh, Book Lovers, and I had seven, uh, five authors who had been on the show before uh, come together to talk about their favorite books. Um, where did your love of books begin? Uh, and where did your love of writing begin? Gosh, I, you know, I think it, it happened simultaneously, but I can remember being a very young kid and not only loving books, but, you know, my mom would take us to the library all the time and I would pick out biographies and autobiographies mm -hmm. and usually of old Hollywood. You know, I remember reading Lana Turner's book. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and, yeah. And, you know, Marilyn Monroe, of course, anything I could get on her and, and Elvis, obviously, you know, his story was just always so much fun to read. Um, but I was just always reading books about real people from a very young age. And so then a journalism major in college, you know, that just seemed like a natural fit because I loved people's stories. And, uh, then when I graduated, you know, so much of my work was really public relations and marketing based, and it got away from 
what was really my calling, I think. And this Elvis work has just reconnected me with that. You know, you talked in the beginning about how this is going to be a conversation, not an interview. And every time I went to Memphis and Tupelo to interview for this book, every one of those situations felt like a conversation. You know, I thought it would be an hour and it would be six, seven hours. And, and that's the part I love. So I, I think it's just the story, you know, the human story. I always say we don't need to make anything up because real life is good enough. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I mean, I don't read fiction uh, yeah. because real life is much more exciting. What is your earliest memory of Elvis Presley? My earliest memory of Elvis Presley, and I've talked about it before, I always say that my I'm lucky my childhood had a soundtrack because uh, my dad would play records all the time. And my dad was also born in 1935. So he was a huge Sinatra fan and not a big Elvis fan, but he liked older Elvis, you know, because when Elvis came out, he was for the girls. Uh, so my dad was not a fan at first. He felt it was too teeny bopper. Uh, but he loved the Aloha concert. He loved the Aloha album. And he had that in his stack of records. And I would always grab that and open it up and look at it. Um, you know, the, it was sure you, I, excuse me, but you, I'm sure you, your father loves the Elvis Frank Sinatra uh, special together. One, oh, of my, absolutely. one of my favorites, of course. Mine too, because you know, the, the magic of that is not only how beautiful they both look and sound, <laughs> but the fact that it never had to happen. I think Frank and Elvis are the two biggest stars ever. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we get to have them on stage together at the same time and have the footage, um, I just think that is such a gift. I'm just so thankful it happened. So. You know, and I love there's a, a, a great uh, compilation of Judy Garland where Lorna Luft says that Judy Garland was just absolutely was crazy about Elvis Presley. And other artists just loved his artistry of what he brought. Uh, and when you see him, it was he truly threw himself at his audiences. Uh, I, I mean, I've never seen another artist literally throw themselves at an audience the way he did. It's true. And he captured an audience. You know, I love, I personally love all the performances from the fifties, you know, the Tommy Dorsey mm -hmm. show, the uh, Ed Sullivan show, Steve Allen show. Uh, Cause Elvis is just so raw and he's so perfect, but also um, the talent is unbelievable. And it's just there and it's 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 so natural, you know, um, but at the same time, I love the innocence and the humbleness that's there, because every time the girls scream, he kind of laughs a little bit like he can't even believe that it's happening to him. And he's getting that response. Yes. And I love that. Like it never gets old. Did you ever get a chance to see him live? No. No, nope. I was born in 76. So I was a year old when he died. Oh, well, you're, you are a baby. <laughs> I remember exactly where I was the moment uh, that the news came out that he had passed away. I remember that moment so vividly. Uh, I was working at Grand Strand Amusement Park in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Yeah. And when, uh, and I was listening to the radio and they interrupted the music that I was listening to. And I literally, I screamed, oh my God, Elvis Presley died. And everybody around me stopped. Like I was some crazy person, but everybody like came gravitating over because it was playing on this little transistor radio that I had where I, I worked at an amusement park. So I was running one of the rides to listen to this and people were standing around me in tears like they had lost a family member because he was such a part of our families. And I also feel that, uh, there was, I mean, mothers felt like almost a maternal feeling towards him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had been such a part of our lives. Uh, and he was the king uh, for good reason. Uh, why do you feel from your own perspective, doing all the research that you've done and getting to know him the way that you have, that he resonated so deeply in the hearts and minds of so many people? Well, I think even while he was living and performing, he crossed generations and he's done it ever since. Uh, but you can look at the footage from any of the 1970s concerts and you see grandmothers, mothers, and younger people in the audience, literally three generations of people in the audience. I'm, I'm not quite sure how many, you know, <laughs> audience, audiences of concerts you could look at and see that. I mean, that's really 
amazing. Um, I do think, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, there's kind of a different Elvis for each one, right? Mm -hmm. 50s is so mm -hmm. raw and young and the 60s of the movies and 70s, you get that great Vegas stuff. Um, there's something for everyone in that. And so I think the country kind of went through so many changes during <laughs> those three decades. And Elvis was that steady force through all of it. And I, I think that was very connecting while it was happening. And, um, and again, I think he's, it's 45 years since he's passed and he's still recognizable the world over by his image and first name alone. That's unbelievable. And I don't think you can compare it to anyone else. Absolutely. Now I have two of your, how many books have you written? Just the two, the two Elvis books. Okay. Uh, Destined to Fly, the story yeah. of Ron Strauss, uh, amazing uh, stories. Um, uh, and then uh, Destined to Die Young. I want to focus mostly on this book today. Sure. Um, uh, but there's uh, just wonderful. Uh, you're a great, great writer, first oh, of all. Thank you. I mean, I am pulled in from the first sentence. Thank you. Um, so um, when you sat down to write Destined to Die Young, was that the story that you wanted to tell or did it end up, end up taking on a life of its own? I, I think both those statements are true. It took on a life of its own and it was the story I wanted to tell. Um, again, it started as an idea and it was kind of a, what if this is true? Is there enough evidence to support it? And then it was an overwhelming amount of evidence. Uh, so I, I felt obligated to take it to the next level, you know, not just for me and my endeavor, but for Elvis, like if this is true and he has all this disease and it's, answers the big why question of why does he turn to the medication in the first place? Well, people need to know that because it's so important for his legacy. It's so important for, I think, so much of the negative connotation that surrounds Elvis, unfortunately. His story is always told as one of self-destruction. It is a story of survival, you know, first through extreme poverty, then extreme fame. And then he's dealing with all these health issues that are either unknown or buried, you know, throughout his life. And for far too many people, we end up with the idea that Elvis took too many pills and died in the bathroom. And that is not enough for Elvis Presley. So I felt driven and obligated, you know, to explore this for that reason. Uh, I would say, just to answer the second part, I would say it also kind of took on a life of its own because it was just unbelievable the way things kept falling in my lap. You know, the second book is about Ron Strauss, his pilot, and he was the first person I met who knew Elvis. And I met him simply because he vacationed up here in northern Michigan where I live. Mm -hmm. um, but he was, it was such a great connection and he was so generous with his time. I reached out to other people who knew Elvis because yes, I had a journalism background, but no one in the Elvis world knew me. So I didn't know if they would talk to me or not. Uh, but everyone I reached out to did meet with me. And even beyond that, you know, there was just documentation that fell in my lap and it was just an unbelievable <laughs> journey. And it still is, it still is. Well, I said to you very briefly before we went live, I never like to do a pre-interview before we do an interview because I like to keep it fresh. But I did mention to you that one of my favorite shows is Autopsy mm -hmm. on Reels. Um, I watched the show because, and I went into that show reluctantly thinking that it was one thing and it really is something different if any of you have not seen the show uh, because it really analyzes um, a person's uh, health history um, and we get that also in your book. So kudos to you on that. Uh, but uh, going back to his, uh, is it his uh, maternal grandparents? Yeah. So Elvis's maternal grandparents were first cousins. And that was discovered and announced, you know, written in a book long ago. Uh, but it's always been kind of talked about. Lost over glossed over but also talked about in a negative way like this was mm -hmm. the hillbilly way the backwoods mm -hmm. way you know which is really unfair because back then people got married based on poverty and proximity and the world was a much smaller place so people did marry their cousins people did marry you know within their family within their tribe within their small area you know geographically and in the same way that the roosevelts kept money in the family too right it's no different it's really? just the opposite mm -hmm. um so to to take away that negative connotation and really think about what would that mean what would the consequences of that be um so gladys's parents gladys is elvis's mother her parents were first cousins and as a lifelong Elvis fan and always reading all the books, I always had that question. Always. Why does Elvis die in the same way as his mother? She's 46. He's 42. Very similar four-year period of degenerative health. But she wasn't a rock and roll star and she didn't take medication for 20 years. So why is that? 
And in exploring that family tree, it turns out that three of her brothers also died young. One died at 46, one died at 48, one died, I think, at 55. So by the time you get to Elvis, that stops being a coincidence. That is a lot of young death with heart, liver, lung related issues. Uh, like you said, the autopsy show kind of, you know, it, it explores all that. And Dr. Richard Shepard was a was a resource because of his conclusions um, for that. But in taking that kind of science and medical information, I also wanted to humanize Elvis. Um, you know, I didn't want it to be a science book or a medical book. I wanted it to be Elvis was a human being. Let's allow him to be a human being and not just an icon. And when we look at these flaws, and again, it answers those big questions, you know, there has to be a reason he turns to the medication. There has to be a reason he keeps taking it. So I, I think for the first time, this this answers it in a way that makes sense. Well, I want to talk about another aspect. Um, he was a twin and the mm -hmm. twin died and the psychological aspect that that had on him. Yeah. And again, I think Elvis is also probably the biggest victim in our society of sensationalism and romanticism. And I do think there is an element to his twin dying at birth that has been exaggerated mm -hmm. and sensationalized. You know, there's one movie, um, I think it was just called Elvis. It's the one Dick Clark produced where Elvis is seen talking to a shadow and he feels like that he's talking to his twin. Right. Yet that never happened. Like Elvis never talk to a shadow. People who knew him say that didn't happen. Uh, so in that way, it's kind of romanticized. I do think he maybe felt, um, you know, he asked him, he asked a lot, like, why, why am I Elvis Presley? He would ask that question. Why do I get to be Elvis Presley? But he would also say things like, you know, why did I survive and my twin didn't? You know, I think those questions are natural questions when you're a surviving twin, mm -hmm. for sure. And, and I, and I know those were things he thought about. I would just suggest that it didn't haunt him in the way that it's been romanticized. The way it's been uh, portrayed in the past. Mm -hmm. What was your biggest aha moment writing this book? Oh, gosh. Um, there are several. A lot of things as a lifelong fan made sense that I didn't expect to get connected <laughs> to looking at his health. Uh, but I think the biggest one was just realizing that Elvis really saw himself first and foremost as a provider. Again, I think... Um, you know, there's so much romanticism between about his relationship with his mother. So she dies and he just can't live without her. Well, that's not true. He goes on to be a husband and a father, a decade of films, another decade almost of touring. He had a very fulfilled life. And Let's he talked about this. I mean, he had uh, relatives that lived at Graceland. He yes. gave away cars. He took, he provided for so many people. Yeah. So many people. His grandmother lives at Graceland. You know, I kind of always joke and say like Elvis was so unique because how many rock stars are taking girls home to meet grandma, you know, but <laughs> grandma was... <laughs> that tells you about his connection to his family and how it never stopped. And because he was so poor and he moved so much as a kid, you know, Graceland is one of the, only the second place that he lived the longest. The first was Lauderdale Courts, which was government housing. He moved, I think, a, you know, over a dozen times in the first dozen years of his life. So the people are home, not the house. And he keeps the people close because, um, you know, it was just such a such a big part of him. But he provides for them. His he he was driven to pull his parents out of poverty. I think he decided very young that if this tide's going to turn, I'm the only one who can do it because year after year they're struggling and they're not making ends meet. Um, so not only does it pull his parents out of poverty, but like he said, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandmother, you know, he ends up being responsible for so many people. And you can see that through so much of the decision-making process in his life that you might question. Like, why does he keep making these movies? He doesn't like making these movies. You know, by the time he's doing it for many, many years, they're, they're not, the quality diminishes over time, yet he keeps making them. But how does a poor kid who's providing for all these people say no to a million dollars to do anything? Right. And when he's, you know, very sick at the end and people are saying, oh, but you need to take a break. And he says, too many people rely on me. I can't. Again, that that threat of being a provider for all of these people, pulling them out of poverty and then keeping them there really was a big aha to to what was always driving Elvis, I think. You know, it's interesting. Each day I pull a word that I focus on for the day. And the word that I pulled today was independence. And I was thinking about this word a lot as I was preparing for today's show. Um, how independent do you think he was um, in true in terms of being able to make his own decisions um, in terms of the choices that he made in his own career? Um, we have this image of Colonel Parker there uh, pulling all the strings and everything. But how independent 
was Elvis Presley in terms of his own autonomy and his own decision-making? Well, it's a loaded question because again, with Elvis, one of the things you often have to do is hold two things in tandem that contradict, but they're both true. That's complicated. Um, and he is often a man of contradiction. So he does rely on other people to do a lot of things, especially things he doesn't want to do. And in some ways, that's why the Colonel gets such a bad rap. You know, he was the front guy so that Elvis didn't have to be the mean guy, you know, like he kept people distant. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, he would say all the time, I love being Elvis Presley. And I believe that he did. He loved being Elvis Presley, but it was also very difficult at times. And there are times when his career is being railroaded, you know, the, I think very early on too. And, and I've never really understood the relationship between Elvis and the Colonel and why he keeps the Colonel for so long. But again, that idea of Elvis being a provider helps me understand it because in 1956, I just think Elvis makes that decision that I'll do the singing and he's going to take care of the money. And it's that separated. And when you're not <laughs> connected enough, you know, to the money being made, how mm -hmm. much, where is it going, all of that, you are giving up a certain amount of control. But at the same time, the Presley family made this leap of wealth that should have taken many generations. And they did it in one year. And that's a burden, you know, that's very difficult to deal with and process. They had to put someone in charge of that. The Colonel was in charge of making the money. Uh, I think that works for a long time, you know, as Elvis wants mm -hmm. to be the provider. He doesn't care how much, as long as it's enough. And he felt like he had more than he'd ever need. Um, but then creatively, because he does outgrow just being a provider and he realizes how creatively driven he is, right? We all know that he's a genius in so many ways. Um, that creatively there ends up being issues there. And we see Elvis do his best work when he does go up against the Colonel and when it's not about song rights or how much money they're going to make. And it's just about the fact that that's the song he has to do. That's when Elvis records the best stuff, you know? And if he had been a little more forceful with movies, there would be a movie too that like, that's when Elvis, you know, made the right decision. So I, I don't know that answer to that question completely. I don't know why Elvis wasn't more forceful at different times, but I do know that when he was, it's some of his best work. Well, you know, it's interesting. Years ago, I did stock with Barbara Eden mm -hmm. and Barbara Eden had an assistant that she referred to as the bad genie. And she was the one who would go out and say, I'm sorry, she can't do any more autographs. She's got an, uh, this. And she would, so that Barbara never had to make those choices, especially in front of the fans and everything. Uh, so I can understand that aspect of it. And uh, and it's also the, the one time that I've really seen that type of fame up close was when I, uh, I was appearing in Atlantic City and uh, we went to see Tom Jones and Whoopi Goldberg uh, had just finished doing uh, Sister Act. It just mm -hmm. come out and she was seated at our, at our table and Tom Jones saying she's a lady dedicated the song to her. And when the spotlight hit her at our table, the fans in the audience made a beeline for our table. And they had to get her out of the room because it was just like pandemonium in the audience and it disrupted the show. So this surrounded him at all times, everywhere he went. I can't even imagine what his quiet moments, if there was such a thing, were even like. I've got a question for you, and I don't even know if, and maybe you can answer it like that, or maybe it's going to be a difficult okay. uh, thing for you to answer. All of us have our favorite uh, celebrities. Uh, I, I'm a fan of so many people. Uh, you've pretty much devoted your life to uh, Elvis Presley's legacy. Uh, what is it about Elvis Presley that draws you so deeply towards him? Uh, I think, you know, it's twofold. It is out of curiosity. I think it is the contradiction within Elvis. Like I said, there are things you have to hold in tandem that are opposites, but they're both true at the same time. And that just it makes you keep wondering why and how, and you want those answers. Like one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I would read the books and leave with more questions and answers. You know, there is an aspect of that um, to Elvis that I think fascinates a lot of people. I also think that there's something very personal about Elvis. And I think it's probably that it thing that people talk about with fame, but it's even to a whole nother level with Elvis where it's, it's almost like he can be, I think he's a different Elvis for every fan. He's whoever 
that fan wants him to be. And uh, they feel like they know him and they feel like they have that personal relationship with him or that personal something. I, I don't know even how to put that into words, but mm -hmm. um, I will say that Elvis himself created a lot of that. We know he was humble. He, we know he would, you know, and again, that's why he needs that bad guy Colonel, you know, to kind of keep him a little buffered because he, he never said no to any of the fans. And even at Graceland, he would go down to the gate and talk to them. He would invite them into the house, especially in the fifties. You know, he always had fans into at Graceland. And again, what other star has a home as recognizable as Graceland? You know, it's the most visited home in the country after the White House. So there is a place that we can all go and connect with Elvis, too. And I think that really having that personal connection through his home and, and the city of Memphis um, is part of the reason why he's still so people feel so connected to him. For me personally, the music is incredible. You know, the talent is amazing. Um and the story, the story is just so interesting. I love the uh, American dream aspect of his story without question. Absolutely. And, and of course the decades, you know, I love the fifties. I just, I do. I've always, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, all of that has always fascinated mm -hmm. me. So that was part of the reason, you know, to capture that with Elvis, but in delving so much into his story, now I love the sixties and the seventies just as much because especially the seventies when he's choosing his own music, there's a whole nother reason to love that. So it's just a, it's a really, he's a very diverse star, right? You get diverse music. It's a really interesting story. There's just so much there. Now I want to talk about another realm of fandom. Uh, and I'm going to talk specifically about Judy Garland and her fans. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, I mean, there is like this uh, protective quality when it comes to how her fans look at her. And as a result, there have been so many books that have been written about her that fans uh, either love the books that have been written or they hate the books. Uh, just a few years ago, Renee Zellweger did Judy. Right. Um, I will put it on record. I thought Renee Zellweger did a wonderful job. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what your personal thoughts are of the film, I thought she did a great job in the film. Sure. Um, how have you been embraced uh, with your book in terms of how the fans are looking at the way that you're presenting his story. Well, even Elvis said, not everyone's going to love you. <laughs> uh, I will tell you, Carol Channing said to me, for every person who likes you, there are an equal number who don't. Get used yeah. to it. So she that's said, okay. Yes. You know, that's that's yes. okay. Not everybody likes me. Not everybody likes my book. Right. Um, right. However, having said that, um, I, I knew when I wrote this book, and uh, you know, I see a book as a as an exploration, a, a full exploration, a complete exploration of a single idea. And I love that because you look at it from every angle, you know, and you put it out there. And it, it was four years of my life to produce that book. So when I put it out into the world, it was like, gosh, what are people going to think? You know, and there was just a moment of peace where it's like, it doesn't matter what people think. I know I did the best job I could do. I know I did this for Elvis. I know this is good for Elvis. And I did it with integrity from start to finish. So I had peace with that. Um, and I also knew that it was possible the 10 people I'm related to were the only ones who ever read the book. And that was okay too, because I believed, <laughs> I believed so much in what I was doing that that was also an okay outcome. Um, I've been pleasantly surprised that it's been very successful. I'm in my third printing of Destiny to Die Young. Congratulations. That's great. And and I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of that for Elvis. And I, you know, during Elvis week, I released my second book and was talking to hundreds of people. And I said to every one of them, you know, thank you so much for uh, reading Destiny to Die Young, but sharing it because word of mouth is something that I can't buy, <laughs> I can't make, I can't force. It just has to happen. And, and that has naturally happened in the Elvis world amongst fans. And um, it's been a really beautiful thing to watch happen because in the beginning it was a lot of, you're too young to know anything about Elvis. Who do you think you are? <laughs> you weren't alive when Elvis was alive. Some of Judy Garland's greatest fans are those that have come along since she's passed away. Yeah, there was just weird criticism that I didn't expect. You know, you weren't alive when Elvis was alive, so you can't write a book about him. Well, I think people are still writing books about George Washington and Abe Lincoln. <laughs> Maybe, you know. <laughs> Good touche. Good point. They weren't alive then either. So like we sometimes I think history and people need distance. You know, they need 
distance and they need perspective. And for me to look at it all from up here and look down on it, in some ways that gives me a more full picture than the people who actually knew Elvis because maybe they only knew Elvis for two years or they only knew this part of Elvis. So to look at everything, you know, is, is a really interesting aspect too. But don't you think that some people do not want to know uh, this may sound like a strange comment, but uh, that they don't want to know that he was actually a human being, that yes. they have this iconic status of way of seeing him, that they cannot see the human side of him. Yeah, there's a pro there's pros and cons to what I said in the last answer of people being able to own Elvis in their own way. There are pros and cons to that. There's a real beauty in it when it comes to the art and appreciating the artwork. But there is a danger in that and appreciating the man and the history. And that's kind of what muddies the waters with Elvis. You know, there are so many books. You mentioned all the books about Judy Garland. There are so many books about Elvis. And I talk about this a lot. Like my agenda is to have Elvis elevated and thought of and talked about as a historical figure. But if we're going to think of him as a historical figure, then we can't read books that have no citation at all that, mm -hmm. you know, are based on mysterious phone calls that happened in the middle of the night that no one has ever heard of or letters that they were corresponding with Elvis for years. And we know it didn't happen. But some fans want to, they just want as much information as they can get. So they don't care if it happened or not. Right. I mean, there's like a, not that they don't care, but there's a, there's such a fascination that they want as much information as possible. But I was just saying in an interview the other day, if a new book came out on George Washington and it was, you know, pushed as newly discovered information on George Washington that we've never heard before. And there was no citation, there was no evidence, <laughs> there was no validated research no one would read it and no one would believe it but if that same book comes out about Elvis Presley and maybe even Judy Garland because of that iconic status people will read it and a lot of people will believe it so I think we have to be really careful about what we believe what we read what we take in um, and that's why there are 32 pages of citations in the back of my book and when I was going not kidding folks <laughs> she yeah. is not kidding look at this I mean just so. unbelievable it's so much work to put that together, to compile that and to keep track of everything as you're researching over years. And then it, you know, just from a book publishing standpoint, it costs a lot of money to print 32 more pages. And at one point my husband was like, why are you doing this? And I said, well, I have to do this. Elvis has never given this level of journalistic integrity. And I do think it's the one thing that has really given my book a lot of validity and, and just that, you know, again, it's a journalistic integrity. Elvis deserves it. Rose has an interesting question here. Rosa Puzo, I'm glad you made it here, Rose. Um, mm -hmm. uh, have you had any interaction with any of the family members? I, I have not. You know, they're not really reachable, <laughs> uh, per se. And I actually, I, I have had with several cousins. I guess when you say family, I think you you're might be speaking of Priscilla. She, uh, she asked specifically about Priscilla, but I expanded yeah. the question. Uh, no, I know several people have put the book in Priscilla's hands. Um, I have not heard from her. Um, but I did speak to, you know, a number of relatives, especially in Tupelo, because those roots were really important mm -hmm. to me in telling the story. Um, so I did talk to a lot of family, just not the, the most famous ones. And I'm sure that you saw the uh, Baz Luhrmann film. Mm -hmm. uh, were you able to sit back and enjoy the film knowing uh, what you know about uh, Elvis? I wish I could have. Um, it's, I would say, I'll say, like you said, Renee Zellweger did an amazing job as Judy and Austin Butler does an amazing job as Elvis. And the film is beautiful, especially the 1950s era, I think is beautifully mm -hmm. made. Um, it's art. It's film. It's Hollywood. I love all of those things. Mm -hmm. I just wouldn't consider it to be history. Right. Um, I agree with you. And the so, same thing with Judy, because yeah. there are, I mean, there's one moment where at towards the end of the film where she is celebrating her birthday and it's snowing outside in London <laughs> and it's June. <laughs> <laughs> and if it snows in London in June, so, you know, God bless it. But yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they're right. and knowing her history the way, yeah. There are certain things that I know that just jump out at me like that, right? Um, so when you sat down to write this uh, book, I again, I know that you're the fan and you've got your background. Uh, how did it begin for you? What was the seed that you said, okay, I'm I'm committing myself to doing this? Uh, four years of your life. Yeah. What was the starting off point for you? Well, the starting off point, well, my sister had passed away from cancer and she had been an Elvis fan as well. Um, 
you know, and I had been a lifelong Elvis fan, but no one in my age group ever was. So I would, I set it aside for different parts of my life because there was no one to connect with over it. So when I went away to college and all that, you know, I left all my old Elvis books at home, but uh, when she passed away, she had them. So I was reconnected with those old Elvis books. And that really was the catalyst, the initial jumping off point for this book. You know, again, reading Elvis and Gladys and realizing that the maternal grandparents were first cousins. Uh, so that was where the idea, you know, why, the why of it and the how, I guess. But um, I just decided I was going to spend a few months reading everything I could read to see if there was enough information out there. And, you know, there's a little blurb in every Elvis book ever written by the people who knew him that mention a few sentences about his health. Not a lot. But when you put it all together, there's quite a bit there. So I did that first. And then I and then, then at that point, I decided, OK, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to fully research this. I'm going to take it even further. And then, of course, after I met Ron Strauss, it's like, OK, I'm going to Memphis and Tupelo six times. And I'm going to interview as many people as I can. And then, like I said, you know, documentation started to come my way. And it, it just very quickly became a full fledged journalistic, you know, pro project that really was a coming together of professional and personal endeavor. Now, this next question is uh, totally speculation because you definitely don't have the answer to this question because <laughs> it's only, uh, but how do you imagine his passing would be covered by today's media? Oh gosh. You know, it, it's hard to say that it might be more exploited. <laughs> Than it was back then, but uh, you you just uh, hit, hit uh, you just hit on why I asked that question uh, okay. because uh, I feel again having read your book uh, that so much has been exploited uh, over the years about how he passed away yes. um, to the point where we're not getting I don't feel until your book uh, the truth of Absolutely. all of these. Uh, extenuating circumstances that led to his passing. Yeah, and, yeah. And it all, it, I'm sorry to interrupt. It all no, started with Geraldo, you know, the Geraldo special, not long after Elvis died. And it was, you can, you can watch it still on YouTube and across the screen, they just scroll all the drugs that were in his body and they never talk about why they might, he might've been taking those medications. You know, yes, Elvis does have an addiction problem. The book does not sugarcoat that. And I'm sure you agree. Like it, what helped hurts and it does become a problem. The things he's taking for real reasons have tolerance and addiction issues. Uh, some of the things they don't even realize are dangerous at that point. You know, he takes Dextrodin as probably as early as 1956, 57. And people really thought Dextrodin had the same level of addiction as caffeine until the mid seventies. So we have to look at everything in a historical context too. But Again, if he died today, like maybe they'd be more aware of what he had. When Elvis passes, he has disease or disorder in nine of the 11 systems of the body. Always written off as the end result of too much medication. But my research shows that five of those at least were present prior to fame. Couldn't have been caused by the medication. Most likely since birth. A lot of it's genetic in nature. He has an immune system disorder. You know, those things, maybe they would have been, they obviously would have been more understood now than they they were several of them were completely unknown <laughs> in the seventies. So they couldn't be, you know, understood. Um, but I, I think it's likely it would still be as exploited today. Um, again, I think no one really ever looks at why these addictions happen and there's always an answer. So I believe firmly that Elvis was self-medicating through a lot of disease and disorder to, con to continue being Elvis Presley. And I will say beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know, he burns his adrenal glands out in uh, 75, I believe. And I think from the last couple of years of his life, there's no way he could have been up on stage performing without the medication. Wow. Wow. Um, how deep or how far into your writing were you uh, before you started to pitch or sell this book? Well, I never really, the, the beauty of, of the way that I did it um, is that I never had to do that because I, I self-published. I am the publisher and the author. And one of the reasons for that is I wanted complete control over this project from start to finish. You know, I've talked to so many people who knew Elvis, who um, had either ghostwriters and or publishers and, the book would end up not being what they thought the book would be because they wanted it to sell more. So they include more of the bad stuff or exaggerate the bad stuff. Right. So I knew that has happened to Elvis time and again in books written by people who knew him. I didn't want that to happen to this book. I wanted it to have again, journalistic integrity and, and just be mine from start to finish. I, I really felt like I stumbled upon something that 
people haven't pieced together before and that I connected the dots in a way that actually makes sense and makes Elvis's story make sense. And really it makes Elvis's story even better. You know, the fact that he did struggle so much, he overcame so much and yet he kept being Elvis Presley. And do your uh, children share the same love for Elvis that you share? Well, I will tell you first that my dad would play Sinatra whenever we were in the car and whenever we were at home. And there was a time when I absolutely hated that. But I am the biggest Sinatra fan you will find now. <laughs> so my kids um, have an appreciation of Elvis. Some of them like him more than others. They've all been to Graceland more than once. And I know that'll have a lasting effect. Well, I want to tell everybody, uh, thanks to you and your generosity, that you're going to give away uh, two autographed copies. Uh, well, we're going to give uh, both uh, books to the same person. So that they can, and uh, if you don't win today, you can still go on your website and order the books. And all that information is on my YouTube channel. Uh, so uh, on how to get the book and everything. So uh, we're going to do that in a few moments. I want to have a little fun with you. Uh, I've got some random questions that I okay. do as my wind down. Uh, and uh, we've got here a comment from Kat Pren. Uh, do you know who that is? I do. <laughs> okay. Uh, a comment. Sally did a phenomenal job uh, in her research to shed new light on the Elvis story. I think this is worth uh, bringing on screen. Uh, hello, uh, Kat. Thank you for being here. It truly spotlights his struggle to survive, not the tired narrative of self-destruction. Excellent interview. Thank you so much for that as well. Uh, and thanks for being here today. So um, my first question is explore a path to mentoring, particularly in a space or subject where you have a special skill. I'm going to, I mean, you, I've learned so much about you uh, beyond Elvis uh, with uh the work that you do with homeschooling and the program that you and your husband have uh, created and, you know, and to learn that you have self-published, you have complete control over this. Mm -hmm. Would you ever consider doing master classes or uh, teaching others uh, on how to possibly do what you do with their favorite subjects or uh, stars to do the same thing? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a great question. I have to tell you that I am so driven to produce, to do, you know, like I have I'm a cross things off the list kind of person that I'm I think I'm more fulfilled by actually doing it than trying to explain how I do it. <laughs> but but you, at the same you just amaze me. Like I said, you know, I look at you and now I know your age because you told us. Yeah. But I mean, with my mom and you know, and I love her dearly, I just could not imagine my mom being able to add these things uh, to her plate because trust me, I kept her running as the oldest child. So oh, yeah. I, mean, I hope my kids take away from it that um, I just think so many things are important. I think it's so important that I guide my children, you know, as and to be as present as I possibly can. I think it's so important that I feel fulfilled and that my um, brain function, you know, gets gets used. And it, it, it and that was so much of this book is that I just felt like I I wanted adult conversation. So I kind of created that by researching and writing, you know, because I was with kids all the time. Um, so I, I just think it's important to fulfill all those aspects and then to do it well and, and to have integrity. If you have integrity in everything you do, you know, from start to finish and you're good to people and people are good to you, there's just, there's nothing left on the table at the end of the day. That's wonderful. Uh, these, these cards, by the way, it's called an impact deck. And I just pulled random cards. I think there are fun uh, things to do. It says, take 10 minutes. We're not going to take 10 minutes to do this. To identify what being a good person means to you. Um, I'm going to turn this around. What made Elvis Presley a good person? Uh, well, when Gladys was interviewed in the 1950s, you know, about the fame and what it meant to her and what his success meant to her. She said, you know, what I, what I care about the most is that he's a good, decent Christian person that we raised him to be. He's respectful. He, he says, yes, ma'am. And no, sir, please. And thank you. You know, and that's what I care about the most. That's what Gladys said. And that's what I care about the most too. You know, I don't care how successful my kids are, as long as they're good, decent people who know how to treat people. And uh, Elvis did. And when he was on movie sets, that's true. You know, there's so much testimony to that, that he knew the little guy, 
guy and the big guy and everybody by name. And he, he talked to everyone um, when he's touring. He knows the police officers by name in every town. Um, there was a humbleness to him and a, and a control that I think is remarkable. Just like when he's asked what he thinks about Vietnam, he says, you know, I'm just an entertainer. I'm here to entertain. So I'll keep that to myself. But there's so much wisdom in that to, to have that restraint and know that you can have control over people. You, he could tell people who to vote for and they would. <laughs> and, and to control that, there's so much wisdom in it. Like I, I really admire that about Elvis. That's amazing. What a great answer. And thank you for that. Um, and reevaluate a long-held belief. Again, I want to turn this around on Elvis. What is a long-held belief that you've had about Elvis Presley that changed from writing this book? Hmm. A long-held belief that changed. I don't know. I mean, I guess I probably thought that he had a Obviously, the most obvious answer to that question is what I might have thought about the drug use, you know, the uppers and the downers and how that's always told as, you know, one pill to, to wake up, one pill to go to bed. And then I had this simplistic idea of that. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's not enough because there was so much wrong with him. And again, the same thing with, you know, Dr. Nick, and he's a controversial figure for sure. He crosses the line between physician and friend and that becomes a problem. But he's also always trying to figure out what is wrong with Elvis. <laughs> And Elvis leaves his three hospital stays with more knowing that more is wrong with him than what he went in for. And um, I, I just think understanding that health struggle, knowing that he didn't feel good, knowing that he continued to be Elvis Presley, really understanding why there's such a difference in his performances between the 68 comeback special and Elvis the way it is in Vegas. And then Aloha in 73, where he basically just stands and sings and doesn't move around much. You know, there's a reason for all of that. So just just that overall understanding of what was happening to him and, and how really how sick he was and how how difficult it would have been to deal with all those things. And, and he did it so beautifully that most people never knew. Oh, unbelievable. Thank you. Um, what's the wildest thing that you learned about Elvis Presley in your research? Hmm. The wildest thing. Gosh. I don't know. That's such a hard question. I, mean, so much, I can't think of anything off the top of my head because it's all so rock and roll. You know, to me, it's, it's not about learning the crazy stuff that excites me. To mm -hmm. me, it's it's um, learning the falsehoods about the crazy things that we always believe. Kind of like. Well, how, what, well let's turn it, turn it around then. Um, yeah. You know, we uh, we've already t talked about uh, the uh, falsehoods about the drug usage and all of right. that. Beyond all that. Let's, yeah. let's move beyond the, those aspects, sure. the health I issues. I got a great story. <laughs> okay, great. Share it with us. Uh, it's in the second book with Ron Strauss. You know, there is always around his birthday and around the date of his death, there are stories in the media still about how Elvis woke up in the middle of the, you know, didn't wake up. He was up because he lived at night. Uh, but he called the pilots and said, get the plane. We're going to Denver for fool's gold sandwiches, which was a whole loaf of bread, a whole jar of peanut butter, a whole jar of jelly, and a pound of bacon. And the story is always told that like Elvis flies there and he eats the whole thing himself. <laughs> and this is the story of Elvis being a glutton, right? And because he's the king of rock and roll, I think that lends itself to this connotation of him being such a glutton. But we know now beyond a shadow of a doubt, because Ron Strauss was there, it was actually a birthday party for Lisa Marie. It was her eighth birthday. They were flying her home to California, back to her mother. They stop in Denver because Elvis was friends with all these Denver police officers and he was telling them, Elvis about how great these sandwiches are. So they go there. They don't even leave, you know, the airport. The sandwiches are all brought to the, to the airplane. There are many sandwiches. They're cut up in slices. Champagne is brought on. A bottle, uh, um, a birthday cake for Lisa Marie. Everybody, there's 20 people on the plane. They all sing happy birthday to Lisa Marie. And it's a party, which is a very different story from Elvis just flying there, getting a sandwich and gorging himself on it. And I think that's profoundly sad, but it's so exciting to set that straight. Good for you. And that's a that's a perfect note to, for us to somewhat end on, but don't go anywhere for a moment. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give away two of your books today to a lucky winner. Uh, a few of you have said, I hope that Rosa Puza wins. Remember, if you win, you can always send the book to Rose. So, <laughs> and Danielle wins. Uh, Danielle and I had a wonderful uh, conversation early this morning, and we were talking about Elvis. So, uh, Danielle, I'm awesome. glad you won, uh, and I will put you two in touch with each other. 
Uh, okay. I'm going to say a few closing remarks. So uh, Danielle, don't go anywhere. Uh, well, uh, Sally, don't go anywhere for a moment. Sure. I'm going to give my closing remarks and then I'm going to turn it over to you. You've got the final word today. Okay. Uh, anything that we've uh, talked about that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with today. And don't worry about how to end the show. Uh, when the show is over, I will. Uh, when you say goodbye, the credits will roll. And I want to thank you for being here. I've had a blast with you. The hour flew for me. It did. It flew uh, thank by. You, thank you. And thank you, Rosa Puzo, once again, for yes. recommending an incredible guest. She's That's got good. the knack. Um, so uh, I want to thank you all for being here today. Independence. Uh, it means so many things to so many people. Uh, but I learned a lot today. We think about the people in our lives and how they make choices for us. But all of us are responsible for the choices that we make each and every day in terms of the books that we read, uh, the movies we watch, uh, and the things that we hear about these great celebrities, such as Elvis Presley. Uh, there have been a lot of books that have been written about a lot of celebrities. Uh, there was a particular writer that uh, I actually knew many years ago, and he put these books out. Uh, like It seemed like a new book was coming out every two months. And these books were salacious, salacious with the, uh, it, it was like, no, there was no research behind the books. Uh, but these books got sold. And when I went to Palm Springs, there was an entire section of these books. It was like reading almost pornography because he wrote the most salacious aspects of these people's lives. And what I love about uh, Sally is that not only is she a fan, but she respects his legacy. She respects uh, who this man is and was, uh, and that she wants to present him, and she does, with the utmost integrity, uh, and she succeeds with that. So please check her out. Uh, check out. Uh, I can't wait uh, for future books to come out. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, and again, I want to thank you and your husband for the work that you're doing with kids, because mm -hmm. I think that is something. And think about teaching this for adults. I do. <laughs> um, but uh, celebrating these artists. Uh, and it's interesting that a book can come out or a movie or something about these artists. Uh, they were people and they've got families. They've got their own fans. We need to respect that and we need to respect each other. And I think that that's something when you are uh, looking for these books, let this be a lesson to you. And I'm going to show you this again. Uh, the notes mm -hmm. and the reference, just if you can see this, and this goes on for pages and pages and pages. And when I saw that, I was just like, wow, wow, wow. And the fact that you did this all on your own, uh, I'm even more impressed. Yeah. My hope, Sally, is that anytime you feel that you have uh, something that you want to talk about, I don't care what the subject is, that you'll think of Richard Skipper Celebrates to come and talk to me. Um, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Uh, go to your database, reach out to a friend that you haven't spoken to in a few weeks and reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call and let that person know what they mean to you. Um, I have said this before and I'm gonna say it again. I'm leaving Facebook on December 1st. And my reason for leaving Facebook is because I personally feel that a lot of people are using their postings on Facebook. For those of you who love it, this is not a knock. This is about me personally. Um, these postings as a substitute for true human interaction. And true human act, uh, interaction can never be taken away until it's taken away. And as my dear friend, Sean Moniker says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat and you never know what someone else is going through right now. So reach out. But again, if you're gonna go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. 
So on that note, I'm going to leave the screen. And Sally, you've got the final word. And thanks again for being here. I'm a huge fan of yours now. And uh, I can't wait to read the next book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all that you do. And it's all yours. Thank you. Gosh, well, thank you for all of that. I appreciate that so much. Um, if I could leave everyone, you know, with one thought, it's that the limited lens of sex, drugs, and rock and roll for Elvis Presley is not enough. And that might be fun to read about. And it is fun to read about. And I understand that. Uh, but reading about the real man and the real struggle and restoring his humanity in the way that this book does um, is even more interesting. It's more human. Um, like I said before, seeing his story as one of of survival instead of self-destruction really makes it that much more incredible for all that he accomplished and all that he did. Um, so he, he deserves that respect. He, he absolutely was a man of integrity. He was a good person and, and he did the best he could. And, and what more can we ask for? Because he left so much that we get to share uh, still in the music and the movies and, and in the life lessons, there's a lot of life lessons in there. And um, it's, it's a it's a remarkable story. I hope you'll check out the book because I do think it's so important to look at him as a historical figure who who culturally shifted the universe. Thank you.